We there yet? We there yet? The podcast with Rich Kiamko. Ah, uh, that's me. <laughs> we there yet? We there yet? So we're here live with Scott Freed public speaker, motivational speaker, and a really good friend of mine. I'm so excited you had time today to sit with me. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. Well, it was raining out, so there was really nothing else to do. So. Oh, I really feel validated. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here at we, WTY, we're, we the, we There Yet podcast, and I wanted to sit with Scott, uh, who I've known since, God, 2001? 2001. I think it was Fire Island. It was 2001. summer 2001, right before 9-11. Right, right. That was like our big, our big moment. Mm-hmm. I, uh... Actually, yeah, I was, in a, I was in a summer house, and you walked in, and you were all shiny and, and, and sort of A-listy Abby, abs, abs and all, but you were with my house with, uh, with a person whose name will not be mentioned. A-list look, I think, but more like like total, like, approachable personality. Right, wait, wait, right? I see A-list abs with, like, uh, very huggable, friendly. So you were with someone, to, yeah. yeah, right, you were with someone who was very... Very A list, pretty, and slightly nuts. But I was like, oh, but you're friends with this person who, who I don't know if I ever told you this, who I just thought was, you know, everything. Oh. So. Well, he does look like he could be everything. If there, you know, there's every, you know, one person's A list is another person's B list, and so. Right. You know, right. So, whatever list I'm on, he was a, like, he wasn't, he wasn't on the alphabet. It was how A list to me right. he was. Right. 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 Because you were following him with that like. Right, yeah, right, right, right. I was, but he's star strikeable, strikeable. He's very like striking. But I was like, but it was when I when I stop, stop, safe space. Okay. <laughs> oh God. Um, but I just remember thinking, I Scott Scott's really nice, but the person he's hanging with is a little like, sort of has little daggers, like really beautiful, and every now and then back in your back is a knife. It's like. And when I we were hanging out once, he's like, "It's totally chill here. Everyone's totally laid back and chill." <laughs> but that's my seat, and that's my diet Pepsi. Don't touch it. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, exactly "Ah, it it's safe. It's exactly safe." What it was. So when he was hanging out, but with you, you were living there. Yeah. And I was. I could always leave. Like I could bring my own Pepsi and go home to my right, own right, 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 kitchen. Right, but right. you were stuck there, was and there. that was. But I, I, I was. I chose to be there. You chose to. But I, you chose but, to be there. When I met him, you through him, I just thought, "Wow, he's nice, but oh, he's really good." So we ran into each other. On the Long Island Railroad, going yeah, right, back, going back, and that's to the city. yeah. Well, I think we were actually on the we were on the ferry going to the Long Island Railroad when we first saw each other, and yeah. then we started chatting. Oh, you, you're the guy that I I was I have a friend and you're in the house. Right, right, right. but then I, we were both talking to each other very politely, trying to figure out is it safe? Can I really say? Can I really say what I want with this my person? Pockets? Which really is the whole theme of what my whole career is based on, pretty much. Uh, I believe that every one of us has words in our pockets, and this is true, and this is not that original. And we we go through the world looking, whether it's on the uh, or a train station, or a high school hallway, or uh, a subway station, and we look across and think, do the words in my pockets, is there somebody here in the vicinity that will that won't judge me for the words that I'm holding on to my pockets. Where is my person? Who can I take, Who in front of whom can I take these words out? And that's what it was 
for the two of us. Can I tell you what I really think? And can right, you tell right. me? Which is why I can sit here and say to you, well, he hasn't aged well, because these are the words in my pockets that I can only say to certain people, <laughs> you and all your viewers. <laughs> right, right. But we go through life, I've always believed, longing, looking for people, even just one person, to be able to say, listen, I've got a few things I just want to say, and I want to be able to say them without being judged, without being relegated to uh, a lonely place, without being victimized or um, fixed or scolded. I just want to be able to say what I want to say. And that's what we experience at the same time. And, when, and this is the, the, and to prove my point, when you meet somebody who's longing to do the same, and you're able to receive each other's words, you create a really great friendship. Mm. Mm. Oh, I want to be your friend. <laughs> I want to be more your friend. I'm more to your friend. Yeah. But that's why we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was the beginning. And then we would hang out at the beach. Uh, but that after the end of that summer was 9-11. That was like this huge turning point. I think actually I stayed here. Yeah. I stayed here that first night or the second second and third night. We just walked the streets. Right. I think we went to the diner and people were covered, covered in ashes. And we like, we better eat. We might have to go across the George Washington Bridge. We didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. We, it, the we is giant. It wasn't just you and me. Nobody right. knew. Right. So, knew. yeah, that was kind of the, that was like the melt, the, the, the bond, the, that sealed our bond. But uh, what I wanted to bring to my listeners was like the rest of your story. Because you are an incredible motivational speaker. I've seen you speak. You speak at colleges, high schools. To You've spoken at True Colors the world's largest LGBTQIA plus youth uh, conference where it was like over 4,000 students crammed into a 3,000 seater. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's amazing. And it's been universities, synagogues, middle schools, high schools, camps, summer camps, PTA, yeah. PTSA, meetings, parent programs, uh, conferences of teachers, social workers, guidance counselors, and uh, do pedagogical talks to teachers as well. I, I, I consider myself a teen whisperer uh, can, can I say that? Teen whisperer, an expert in teen issues. Really, if it has to do with teenagers, I sort of have an answer. So, working with parents and grandparents of teenagers, or teachers who work with teenagers, and of course the teens themselves. Mm. Mm. How did you get into this kind of work? So, didn't you come to New York to be? You went to NYU, studied acting, I studied dance. theater at NYU. Yeah, before it was Tisch, when it was just the undergraduate school of arts, and I studied musical theater. And I was really successful for a decade. Got my equity card right away, my after card right away, my SAG card. I was just in. I was working all the time. I guess there was a need at the time for short Jewish actors and dancers. I don't know. But I was singing and dancing. And I was sort of the king of national tours. Did you know that? I used to get national tours all the time. And uh, I, you know, when I was 23 years old, I was just happy to have a gig. So I'd be on the road six months at a time, bus and truck, and right. building my resume. And loving it, except there were the there'd be these moments. I remember one time in particular, I was doing a national tour of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> oh, it's a lot to say. It's a lot to say. And it would just uh, be an acronym now, right? It must be. So we were in Lima, Ohio, Lima, Ohio, or Lima, Ohio, which I think is where Glee takes place. Oh, right, right. So we were really there, and I I was one of the brothers. I was one of the twelve brothers, and I remember when. The, the show ended, I went out the stage door and there were all these sweet teenage girls who wanted our autographs. And they approached me and they said, no, which brother were you? Oh. And then it hit me. 
because what I really wanted was to be me in the world. And I was being Benjamin, the twelfth brother, the youngest brother, the, the shortest brother. But I was, I was sort of replaceable. And my, my, my message is now as a motivational speaker is nobody really is, is really replaceable. And so I didn't like the fact that they didn't know who I was. And I kept thinking, I'm performing a character. I'm doing what I'm told. I'm singing how I'm supposed to sing. I'm saying the lines and I'm doing the choreography, choreography I, I'm supposed to. But I'm not fulfilled. Yeah. I, I don't want to be the, 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 the shortest, youngest brother on the stage signing autographs. So I want to be able to, I want the world to see me as me. So I've created a, I created a career doing the same thing, performing, presenting, speaking in front of hundreds of people on a regular basis, using the same exact technique that I was taught as a, as a, as a student of, of acting and dance and, and, and singing, but only applying it to motivational speaking rather than a monologue by John Patrick Shanley or soliloquy by Shakespeare. It's the same technique, how to connect with an audience in the dark, how to reach into the out to the back row and let that person in the back row and the cheaper seats know that they're as important as the people in the front row and the more expensive seats, that they have as much value and worth. All of that technique is still usable to me, workable. I just apply it to, I, I apply my own life story, my messages to it rather than the song and dance that I was doing originally. Yeah. So how did, to answer your question, how did I get there? Right. Because here from there. Right, and even you did that soap opera. No, you know, there's all these. Like, I, I don't want to like get ahead of the game, but I'm like, I know a lot of your stories. Well, in so. my day, in my in the early days, I was an actor, and at the same time, I was also struggling with my sexuality. So, at the age of 24, working off Broadway, doing, um, trying to get my, I was getting my union card, my equity points, to get my union card. It was a full year of apprenticeship at a theater called Musical Theater Works, which doesn't oh, exist anymore. Yeah, 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 it was a rehearsal yeah. studio space, and yeah, yeah, yeah. they also produced a, a one or two Broadway musicals. It was a pretty cool place. So I was an apprentice there for a year, and I was told at the end of the year that I'd be able to earn my equity card, and I did. But I worked really hard, and one of the shows I was working on, I wasn't on stage, I was under the stage, and I mean literally under the stage. So you were like tech? Well, I was doing some tech work and props and lighting and costumes and... Uh, mopping the stage and whatever needed to be done to, to get my points, points to be able to right, be right. on the stage and performing. And I learned a lot. I actually think that any actor that wants to work in a live theater needs to know how to hang lights, needs to know how to uh, uh, put the costumes away. You, you got to know how the whole thing works in, in order to respect the place that got you there, right, all right. the people that put you, make you look beautiful. Right. So I was under the stage. I was literally underneath the stage. It was a crawl space at the Cherry Lane Theater. And, uh, and the actors were, uh, of the show were rehearsing their lyrics. And I would stop what I was doing. I was moving sets. And the first job they gave me was to move props, old props of the Cherry Lane Theater. It hadn't been used in a long time. Now it's a very usable, famous theater. But it had been dark for a long time back in 87. So they asked me to go under the stage in the tra under the under the crawl space in the crawl space and move the old sets and costumes and make just clear it out. They were going to use the crawl space for a bit joke. One of the actors was going to come up and do a Sweeney Todd 
type joke where he was going to lift the trap door of the stage, oh, uh-huh. pop up, and do a, I don't know, a one second joke, and then pop back down. And in order for that to happen, they had to clear they had to out, clear everything out. And so they said, yeah, get that assistant to, to the assistant to the assistant, that guy over there, get him to clean out this the bottom of the crawl space. So I was under the stage for days on end by myself, and I hear footsteps above me, and I listen to the lyrics the actors, the people I wanted to be. And I felt that I was in a position, I felt like I was in a time of having to earn my visibility. Mm. And this is an important message. Nobody, in truth, needs to earn their visibility. We have the right to be seen. We all have the right to be seen, but I didn't feel that at the age of 24, out of work, trying to make a buck and wanting to be seen thinking well I've got to be underneath the stage listening to the people walking over my head to earn the points literally to earn the right figuratively to be seen in the world on stage to be the one who says the monologue or sings that lyric and I remember the lyrics one of them went like this everybody's got a story and they tell it really well how they had a chance at heaven but they ended up in hell that was my life. I wanted to be on stage, but I didn't think I deserved it. And I mean that metaphorically. metaphorically. I didn't think I deserved to be seen. Right. Which is why my whole message now is that you, there's not a thing you need to do or say or be or wear or act or fill in the blank, whatever verb you want, to be loved. You don't have to do anything to deserve love, to deserve to be seen. But I didn't know that, and a lot of people are like me like I was. Mm-hmm. And while I was under the stage listening to these lyrics, trying to earn my the right of visibility, the painter, the, the painter of the set, he was a techie, a carpenter, working on it, building the set, he approached me and um, he talked to me. And nobody else would. The actors would ignore me. The actors stayed with the actors. Once upon a time, I was one of them, but now I was underneath the stage and so the techies talked to the techies and nobody talked to me so this is a story about visibility Mm. I felt completely invisible and so when he approached me I almost think he saw in a way I was a target I was vulnerable he must have sensed that I was feeling invisible and that uh I wanted to be acknowledged. Who doesn't want to be seen? He came for me. He was, um, he had long hair and sort of a not full beard and bad skin, really bad skin, saggy, baggy eyes, really skinny. And he stood really close to me. And I, I remember how he broke the boundary that you create between two people. Like there's a, there's a space that we create, not just for the camera, but for comfort. And I have mine, and you have yours, and we're not going to break it. And then he broke it. He got really close. I could smell him. I could smell the Irish Spring okay. soap, which smelled like danger, because I think that danger has a smell. Right, right. And I remember his fe- the feeling of his arm against my arm, the hair on my arm ignited because it touched his. And, and I remember how he, he looked into my eyes and said, I, I, I definitely, I definitely know you. And if he didn't say I know you, he 
behaved in a way as if to say, we know each other. Mm. And then from that moment on, he became my, well, before the BFF term was even a term in 1987, he became my BFF. I have this theory about BFFs. BFFs are people that are lonely in the world and find each other and then become best friends forever in an instant, which is not a healthy thing. Right. True friendship takes time to establish. Hmm. But we became instantly uh, close, be out of survival. It's as if to, to say, you know, he was, he, it's as if he was saying, I know that you're being ignored by everybody and I am being ignored by everybody, so let's just be ignored by, by everybody together. So we're in our own sort let's of... Let's be isolated together. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't make for earning your visibility. Right, right. Or understanding that you don't have to earn your visibility. It still keeps you invisible. Right. So day in and day out, we would do things together under the stage. You know, we talk to each other and he'd teach me things about how to hang lights and how to do stuff and he would talk to me. And then uh, he invited me out. He invited me over to his apartment. And I said, like, yes, no way I'm going to this guy's apartment because I'm straight and I'm not what he thinks I am. And the interesting thing that happens when you're the painter of a set on opening night, you're out of a job. And I was, the, I was sort of the assistant to everyone and everything. So I kept busy even when the show opened, certainly after the show opened. And I began to notice day after day while the show ran, and it was a very successful run at the Cherryland Theater, I was invisible again. There was nobody talking to me. There was the guy that just put the costumes away and swept the stage at night, and there was no one to talk to me. And I, 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 I noticed the emptiness. I felt this longing to be seen again by someone who once did see me. So I remember that he'd given me his number, and he said, you, sh you should call sometime, because I'm... I'm leaving. I, the show is opening. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna be around much longer, and I'll, I'll see ya. And then, after a few weeks of feeling invisible again, I called him because I wanted to be seen. And I went to his apartment. And you know, today it, we we call it an evening of Netflix and chill. Right. Right. But back then we called it an evening of VHS and chill. VHS and well, they didn't have chill then, right? It was no, just they didn't. And well, it's always been chill. Right. And the chill part of chill really is—it's—it's it's actually not what most people think it is. And that's why I want to teach my students the chill part of the Netflix and chill is really the conversation on the couch. So, what do you like? And where are you from? And what's the emptiness inside of you if you were to share it? feel like and what are the words in your pockets that you're longing to lay down on the table so that you can maybe find out there are others who have similar words and you can feel less alone in the universe that's what chill is really about and sometimes we explore those questions with sexuality with getting naked or with touching the other person but it's really in my theory in my, my, my judgment it's really a desire to say hey do you feel like I feel? Are you, are you like me? Am I the only one who feels? I cannot be the only one who feels this existential angst and loneliness in the universe. Mm -hmm. And so instead, we chill, hook up. Right, to fill that hole. If I touch you there, <laughs> and you touch me here, wherever here and there are, I will know what you feel, and I will know what you know, and you will know what I feel, and you will know what I know, and therefore we won't, or think we won't be alone, but it's just an illusion. So we bring our emptiness to every chill encounter. I brought my emptiness, my longing, my shadows, sometimes we call them, 
my uh, my unrequited wantingness to be something other than who I thought I was. And he brought his, and that's the part that's we get tripped up with. I thought he, I created this vision of this idea, this image of this guy that's got his act together, right. and he knows that I'm not the person I think I am, and I'll just let him teach me. And he's probably at the same time playing the same game. He's bringing his, he's bringing shadows. his shadows, right? So you're meeting shadow to shadow, and so show. we're meeting shadow to shadow, but we're lying to each other about it, and we're lying to ourselves about it, and then we get naked because that's what happens in the chill encounter. The hookup. Only we didn't use condoms, and so in 1987. Oh my God! And like, what was the conversation like in 1987? I remember, like, I was in the dorms, and they were like, people were afraid to talk about condoms, but they had to meet condoms. Like, you're funny. Go on stage and just just talk about it, Richie. Just you're good. Just I'm like, okay. Well, hey guys, if you need condoms to make condoms approachable, accessible. Yeah, but it wasn't really a big conversation. So at that point, you didn't. He didn't bring it up. You didn't bring it up. And I did. I did. I remember saying to him, now I went to his apartment a few times and mostly on Monday nights. That just seemed to be the way I, I did it. So you would chill. You had chilled without like... Watched, we watched movies. Watched v, we did. We VHS. watched um, Terms of Endearment with Charlie Shirley McLean. 1987. We watched other movies. Whatever. We hung out. So you were just you were hanging out, but you weren't having sex. Oh no no! Every time we hung out, it would lead to some type of sexual encounter, whether it was oral sex or dry humping, which meant clothes on or or clothes off, humping, body contact, or but it it was never a question of being unsafe when it was about penetration, anal intercourse. So at one point, at some point, I remember saying, you know, we should talk about AIDS and we should talk about. Eighty-seven is big. It's huge. It's yeah. it was everywhere. It was the tip of everyone's tongue. It right. was the front page of every newspaper above the fold. It was right. on everyone's minds in nineteen eighty-seven. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't learn about it anymore. Thirty-two years later, but then it was huge. It was as big as it was. It was the it was today. It's impeachment. Back then, it was AIDS. Right, right, all right. it was. Right. So I I remember having some conversations with him about it. And I remember him evading me. I remember him giving me some answers, nothing direct. And I remember saying, you know, we, we really we need to use condoms. But I also remember thinking how uncomfortable, I remember feeling uncomfortable by saying the C word. You know, I, so I, I teach in schools. I teach in middle schools and high schools and summer camps, and I'm asked by many of the principals to you know, tell my story, but don't say the condom word. And in all the years wow. that I've been teaching, I've always argued, and I can, will always continue to argue, if I can't say the word condom, then it means that a teenager can't hear the word condom. If a teenager can't hear the word condom, they're not going to be able to say the word condom and then ultimately use, use one, one when the time comes. I mean, even if I have to change the word to protection, prophylactic, whatever, rubber, if I can't say the word condom without there being any fear, or shame because the shadow about that, shadow is, about that is perpetuating sh shame and shadow so you're, no you're use having a, a person talk about safe safer sex practices but shaming them out of being explicit exactly this, what's the point well you well the point is it's, it's like it's like talking about anorexia and then you're starving while you're trying to tell them to eat because you're just modeling the same problem it's yeah 
but I also think the point is I actually think that in a very subliminal way teachers and other professionals principals in particular and some parents are they don't want to touch it they don't want to talk about it so it's still kind of creates fear around sex. Yeah. And um, most of the teenagers today learn about sex and sex get sex education from the porn in their phones. Right. Which most of the time is condomless Condomless. There's no conversation. There's no chill. It's just, hey, right. And consent is given in a contract before the cameras go on. But it's not given on camera in a scene. So we never see a person, two people in a sexual encounter in porn asking and offering and giving and ta- negotiating consent. It's there, it's been granted, but we don't, it's not being taught. It's in, right. right, right, it's not model, it's just so implied. Well, where was it implied? Well, where somewhere. Was it implied? If, exactly. yeah, if I went over, if we're in this room together, that means consent? So I didn't learn about consent, and I didn't learn about how to use the word condom, and I didn't learn about safer sex, and I didn't use one. And somewhere in that month of December 1987, we didn't use a condom. He didn't use a condom. I didn't make him using condom. I didn't check to see that he put a condom on. I didn't uh, know. I remember one night actually, he rolled off of me and he looked into my eyes and I said, well that didn't hurt because usually it did. And he said, well that's because I didn't use a condom that time. Oh my god. So anyway, yeah, it was December 1987. It was the height of the epidemic in New York City, or at least the the wave was about to crest. Because I, I actually think the wave crested uh, in 91, 92. That's when most of the deaths in New York City seemed to happen, in my experience anyway. So the beginning of the wave turning into a giant crest. 87, I got infected with HIV from a man who knew he had HIV, who wow. actually... He was diagnosed with AIDS by the time he'd given me his phone number. He never told me. I never really asked. I only found out when he died of AIDS. Wow. A few years later. So when did he die? A couple years later in Los Angeles. And the way I found out that he had had HIV, I even think he'd already progressed to AIDS when he'd given me his phone number, was um, a good friend of mine with AIDS a couple years later moved out to L.A. And uh, I went to visit him. I went to visit Charlie out in Los Angeles to see how his life had been work, how his life was in, in L.A. And, and he told me that he'd been looking for an apartment. And did I ever tell you the story? It's fascinating. So we're sitting at, the, at some restaurant in L.A., in West Hollywood. And I don't know why, but I mentioned this guy's name, the guy that is, who, who, from whom I got infected for the first time. I, I never said his name before, and I rarely say it since. I've written about it, but I don't like to say his name. And it's a very particular name, and so I said his name. And Charlie said, hmm, that's an interesting name, because I met a guy a couple weeks ago who, I answered an ad. He answered an ad for an apartment. He was looking for a roommate. And I said, there's no way. The guy lives in New York. And he, So he described the same guy. Long hair, kind of a half-grown beard, bad skin, skinny, 5'9". 510. And then he described the layout of the apartment that was exactly exact to the layout of the apartment in New York City, only he'd sort of transported to LA. Ah. And then he said he just moved here from New York City, from the Upper West Side. It was the same guy. Wow. So 
so what I learned that in that encounter is two few things at that lunch in L.A. One, he he had moved out to L.A. The guy from whom I got infected, and uh, two, uh, that he knew he had HIV before he gave me his number because Charlie and this guy talked about. You know, if I move in here, I need you to know that I have HIV. Oh, I do too. Really? Who's your doctor? And when did you get diagnosed? And so he got diagnosed in 1986. Yikes! Wow! Wow, so he knew and just... And then I met him in the end of 1987. Right, right. So, uh, from this encounter, I learned that he knew he had the virus, he'd been infected for at least a year and a half to two years whatever it is, before he even gave me his phone number. I remember that one time we hooked, we hooked, hanging out, we didn't hook up. He, it was in December, and he had a scarf around his neck, and he was drinking tea, and he was, he had a little bit of a tiny little cold, and he was acting like he was dying, and I remember saying, dude, you look, you're, you're acting like you're dying. I don't mean to make light of it and sound insensitive, but it's, it's just a cold. And then I thought back when I realized that he knew he had the virus, but oh didn't share God. that with me. Right. He, he did have a cold. But in 1987, when you had a cold and AIDS. Right. That was like you're on the edge of the cliff and you could fall. Yeah. And so things started to make sense. Wow. So I got infected with HIV in 1987, my first time having unprotected sex with a man who knew he had the virus, but didn't tell me. And I didn't really investigate and negotiate and ask. And... Then he moved out to L.A. and died. So you were diagnosed when? 1988, six months later. Only because... After you found out he had moved to L.A.? No, 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 that was years later. I, I got sick a few weeks later, so that's now January, and then I went to get tested for all kinds of tests. Syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, all the, all the um, STIs. And everything came back negative. But in 1987, the testing for HIV was primitive. So the way it worked is there was only there was a it was a blood test. It was a Western blot and an ELISA and ELISA. Right. And well first they would run the the test and then they'd run it again. And they still do that, but there is much more advanced technology today. But in those days it took you had to wait six months. Right. From the point of an exposure, whether it was infection or not, if you, you exposure. So the moment of exposure, six months after that. And then once you give your blood, you had to wait three weeks for the blood test to come back. God. And then you had to wait four hours for them to call your number three weeks later. Right. It's a lot of waiting. Right, right. In 2020, we're on the heels of the new year, 19 minutes. Right. And it can, the results can be given to you in this, from the moment of exposure, the point of possible exposure, nine, 10 days later. Wow. Depending upon the type of test. Right, and right. how much money you have to spend, willing to spend. Right, right. So, six months. Back in 87. June 1st. This was December. June 1st when I got diagnosed. Wow. So, at that point, what did you do? I mean, but that's that was a different conversation in, in 88 than today. In 1988. Did the world sort of just stopped? Did everything just like, what? Yeah, the world did stop. I like to think June it was June first about twelve thirty in the afternoon. I remember that you know when you watch TV or a movie and something tragic is about to happen, so the camera moves in slow motion, 
So when I heard the words from this chess counselor whose name was Larry, can't get any, I'll never get his name and his face out of my, my mouth. Right, right. And, it, and the folder in his hand, my results in the folder in his hand, looking up at me, looking down at the folder, looking up at me, looking down at the folder, looking up at me, thinking, I don't know how I'm about to, I'm, I've got to say this, and but one of these moments is the moment I'm going to say, sorry, um, it's positive. Oh. So in that moment, that's when the camera's, went into slow motion. Right, and like, what, I, I, I'm just like, I mean, I went white. I, I, yeah. White. Absence. It's not even the color. It's just absence. This, the, is, this is the 80s version. Like, today, there's a different It's still of, devastating. It's still so devastating, it's but, but devastating. We, we, we see that it's other magical. people are living with yeah. HIV. They have medications that work, and there are people that, like, you know, but I remember in those days, like, I went to the clinic to get a test, and all, before the test, all that's going through my mind is every single thing I did, and I'm, like, plea bargaining in my mind, like, God, I promise, promise, I'll never, I'll never kiss a random person. I mean, I didn't do sure. anything, but I just, I was so afraid. Right. Everyone was so afraid. Like, I wouldn't even talk to people on the street. If I did, they'd be like, oh, you know, I was so, so like. take that, take that, and then know that fear, but also add to that. The knowledge that you have that I actually have HIV. So people would look at me. I remember one guy cruised me after I got my results. I got on the subway and some guy I suspected was cruising me. And the first thing I thought was, well, if you only really knew, you wouldn't be cruising me. Right. But to answer your question, in the moments as the camera of my life, or should say my destiny, slowed down, I saw Larry's lips, the test counselor, move in slow motion. And I remember hearing him in slow motion say, get some protein, eat a lot of protein, make an appointment for August, this was June, and call this number, those three things, in slow motion. Eat protein. But at the same time, at the same time, while that was happening, I lived an entire life, I lived my entire life over again. You know that expression, you see your life flash before your eyes. It actually isn't that. What really happens is you don't see your life as you lived it flash before your life, your eyes. You also see the life you wanted to live or hoping to live flash before your eyes. Right. Not just everything up until that you lived up until that moment, but all the dreams and wishes and intentions that you've had for a life that's going to be well lived. The love, the losses, the children you want to raise the yeah, what did you wish you had said what do you what did you wish you had said before that plan, all your plans so that yeah. flashes before my eyes at the same time as the past flashing lots happening wow time stops larry's lips are moving in slow motion but time for me stops and i'm sort of thrown into a sort of parallel universe where i get to relive all the important moments of my life but also also the ones that i wanted to live but didn't experience yet all this is happening at the same time and while this is happening I hear my father calling out to me from 7th grade 1970 so this is happening all in your head you it's all dad. happening at the same time in my head and I hear my dad calling out to me from my childhood what did you do what have you done what have you done I can't fix this I can't wash this out of your eye once I had the thing in my eye and my dad washed the paint out of my eye painted my eye and he washed it away and it was it was it was good because dads can do that but I hear him saying I can't 
I can't get rid of it. And I see my mom. I see my mom. But she won't look at me. She's, she's, she's got a rag in her left hand. And she's facing away from me. She's in the, in the room. She's at the window. This is in your mind. In my mind, she's behind Larry, whose lips are moving in slow motion. And she's trying to clean the windowsill. Now I recognize trying to get the spot out. Very Lady Macbeth. Right, Trying right. to get out the damn out, spot. Out the damn spot. But it won't come out. Yeah, my yeah. father's over here from seventh grade talking to me. Larry's speaking in slow motion. My mother's trying to get rid of the spot. I'm thinking of the life I lived, and I'm reliving the life I never lived. Right. And then I hear a voice. And the voice, really, if I'm being sincere, it's not a voice. That's very biblical. What I heard was, what I felt was a prompt. And it, it, it came to me in the form of words, but it wasn't a voice that said these words. It was a, a prompt. It's the best word I can come up with. Something that cued me, that uh, set me into a position, kind of picked me up when this I was spinning around in slow motion and all this was happening, and turned me around and put me down towards my future. And the prompt I heard were three words. And the words were, are you ready? And I'm like, am I ready? All I thought was positive, 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 HIV positive. But then I hear or feel, are you ready? And then I imagine, and, I'm th- I, and I remember saying, I'm ready for what? what am, I, am I ready for what? All oh, this is happening at the same time. And the answer that came back was, are you ready to stop running from your life? Are you ready to stop running from being fully alive? So the moment that I got my HIV diagnosis was the moment that I recognized that whatever control we have over our lives, whatever we think we have a command over the destiny that we've been given, once it's taken out of our hands, we want it back. Mm-hmm. We want to be the ones to say, I'll throw it away. Not you. Right, right. Not a virus. It's also like... I think like not this is not exact parallel, but when I remember seeing the towers fall, mm-hmm. I was on the street literally. Well, you know, right here on the corner, and I'm, and it went, and I, I kept thinking like, oh, they must be shooting. They're shooting a really good high def movie because it looks like it really fell. And then when I saw people running, I'm like, and I had a similar thing where I was like, oh my god, I never finished that show mm-hmm. that I wanted to write. Oh, I never. All, I thought of all the things that I had been avoiding from. Right. All the things that we run from. Right. So that was the moment I stopped running. And started living. And from that moment, I decided I would... Well, it wasn't that moment. I, 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 that moment was when I decided I, I wanted to live. But I needed to figure out how. So I found a support group. I called the number he gave me. I never went back in August... And I ate a lot of protein. And not, by the way, that has nothing to do with HIV. It was bad advice. <laughs> that's, but, but that's all they had. Right. Well, that's they were just they like, knew. make sure you feed yourself. That's all they knew. He had to give me something. It took me about five years in support groups and friends and... Well, this is also friends. a historic friend. That was like Friends Indeed, Jonathan Lars. Wasn't... Like, right. So, so at the time, I joined a support group that was... That Marianne Williamson created. Called Manhattan Center, the Manhattan Center, Center for, for Living. Living. Yeah, you were there before even I volunteered. Before it became like a bigger. Well, I knew Marianne before, before it existed. Right. And then she sat us all down and said, "I want to make this center. There's one in L.A. I want to bring it to New York. Will you, uh, 
what do you think? Will you help me raise money for it? And then it opened and it became this great center and then another one came out that, that closed and another one came out, Friends Indeed, which still exists by the way. Right, right, Friends Indeed still... Well, it's not there, but it's, they, it's, they moved it's to Soho, but it's still Yeah, around. Soho, right, right. A couple times a week, I still go. And Jonathan Larson was, was writing a musical at the time and he was going to write this movie. He wanted to write a musical about his his friends who were dying of AIDS. His best friend, I should say dying, were living with and wrestling with, and many of them did die, but his best friend didn't. Uh, they were dealing with AIDS. So he wrote this musical. He, he was writing a musical, and it became Rent. He didn't know. We didn't know. Nobody knew that it would be this Pulitzer Prize winning, life-changing, life-affirming movement. So he came to our support group because his best friend, Matt, who's still alive, said, come to my group. And he listened to us share and tell our stories and he wrote us into the musical. And we learned, he learned a lot from us. We said, no day but today, and he just put to music. There was one night where I had a fight with the facilitator and I was her pet, I never fought. Except this one time, I always sat in the front row and then this one time, I sat in the back row. I was so mad at her. Was this uh, Marion? No, no, it's just Sai and Neil. Yeah. Okay. And I was just angry that all my friends were dying, and I was confused as to when my time was going to come and why it hadn't happened yet. Things weren't making sense, and I was feeling like a victim. That was my thing at the time. And I remember sitting in the back row, and everybody could see me and hear me. Because in the front row, they really don't, they couldn't see my face, but in the back, they could all see me. And I remember saying, I am really suspicious of you. Really suspicious. And it hurt her. She was so hurt by that. She said, what are you suspicious about? I said, everything is always great with you. And you keep thinking that it's, you know, it's all good, and how do you feel today? But I can't understand why I'm still alive. And then I see the musical. And there's a character who says, and I quote, I find your theory, he says to the facilitator, I find some of what you say suspect because reasons says I should have died three years ago. Right, right. It all came out of a fight I had with her because I was suspicious of surviving. Right. Now it's in the music. Right. And I have no real way of knowing that, that was me, but I'm here to tell you that's exactly what I said. Right, Those right, words. right. The only thing I didn't say was, I, I never say things like, I find some of what you say suspect. I don't use the word suspect, I use the word suspicious. So I remember saying, I'm suspicious of you. I'm a little suspicious of this whole thing. And in the musical, it's, I find some of what you say suspect. I said that. Yeah, yeah. So things like that happened and then became part of the musical. Yeah, oh it's my pretty God. cool. Oh my God! Yeah, and so the couple of years went by, and I started becoming a public speaker and an educator, really only as a volunteer, and now it's a career, it's a life commission, it's my purpose, it's my work in life. But I started teaching teenagers about condoms and fluids that transfer HIV and latex, and that grew into talks about suicide prevention and bully education and kindness and eating disorders, self harm, drugs and alcohol, loneliness how to live with a broken heart, parents who get divorced, which grew into conversations at colleges about rape and social contracts, 
rape and consent, mm. and uh, which turned into conversations about parents and teaching parents how to talk to teenagers about consent and condoms and w what's your role, what's the parent's role in this. If schools aren't going to let you use the word condom, then I've got to teach the parents to teach the kids. Who teaches the parents? If the parents, if it, if it falls to the parents, then someone's got to teach them. So I've been building this sort of um, giant campaign as an educator and as an inspirational speaker, and just as a guy who wants to do good things in the world, to add beauty to the world, teach parents how to teach teenagers, teach teenagers how to love themselves, and do it by modeling. And so I like to say, and this is my Instagram profile, because that's all that matters. <laughs> What's your Instagram profile? Right, right. So my profile is, that was a, you know important sentence, I teach kindness. Teaching kindness, the way to teach kindness, I mean, there, there could be a curriculum for it, and there, I'm, I'm told there are, but really the way to teach kindness is to be kindness. That's it. The way you teach kindness is by always modeling, demonstrating, in everything you do, how you do it through, with, because of kindness. That's how you teach kindness. And it's not easy because life sometimes prompts us to be unkind. Right, and people don't model kindness to us or to themselves or to, the, to so, others. Right, I love to say that it's easy. Kindness is easy when it's being handed out. Right. If you're bathing in it. Right, if you're bathing in it with, with kind people. It's easy to love people who are easy to love. The work, and this is the work for all of us, the spiritual work is to find a way to love all the others. And I didn't say love all the others. I didn't say love them. I said find a way. The work is to find a way, to be willing to find a way to love people who are harder to love. It's so easy to love a three-and-a-half-year-old little boy who says, will you play with me? Every one of us still has that three-and-a-half-year-old little boy inside of us, or girl, or them, gender neutral, who wants to say, will you play with me? Me, mm. me, see me. Yeah. And our work as loving, kind adults is to see that yeah. in everybody. And it's not easy. That's what kindness is about. So I made a career out of doing that and modeling that. And sometimes it's very specific, talking about condoms and mucous membranes and the difference between bacterial STIs and viral STIs. And sometimes it's really metaphorical, like how to accept your enoughness and uh, right, or how to know that you how to cultivate enoughness when the world, you know, the lack of likes on your social media feed. Like, well, I'm not right. Not enough. I don't have. I have to have at least five hundred likes. Right. It always comes back to five hundred. Wow. It always comes back to <laughs> wish. The the word. I, for me, it always comes back to the words in our pockets. We, everybody's got their hands in their pockets, hmm. and sometimes they're holding on to their cell phone, and sometimes they're holding on to their keys, and sometimes they're holding on to the things, the words they wish they could say. If I were to reveal this, these words, would people still follow me on Instagram? Would they invite me to be with them at the table? Would they love me? Would I even be liked? Would I be unfriended? So I think we go through life looking for people to be able to say, if you knew the real me, would you still like me? Mm -hmm. And you have amazing books that you've written. I mean, you have two here. I've written four. And uh, my newest books are uh, uh, 
this newest book is How to Raise an Elegant Teen. It's the ABCs of Gen Z Parenting. I'll hold up for the... It actually is bigger than I thought it was. It's actually quite a big book. I was doing these parent lectures. I have been for about 15, 20 years now. And the parents would come up to me at the end of my parent talk. Sort of like a magician showing the audience how the trick worked. Mm. I teach parents how it is I get teenagers to come up to me. Right. It's like, how do you get them to eat vegetables? How do you get them to, to, to open up to Give me 90 minutes and I'll tell you. So I started giving my tricks away. And the parents would line up at the end of the talk and they would look at the books at the table and here's a book on HIV and AIDS in teenagers and here's a book on their secrets and here's a book on their artwork and all my stuff. And they'd say, well, which one of these books has everything you just said? And I would say, yeah, I haven't written it yet. And, I, and they'd say, well, when you write it, I'll buy it. <laughs> so on May 1st, I sat down and said, let's see how right, far I can yeah. go. And by August 31st, it was done. I did it in basically 100 days. So it was sort of commissioned by every parent out there. And it's my tricks how to get parents to listen to the teenagers will talk. And really the greatest thing I can say about that is stop worrying when they don't talk. Let's learn to get comfortable, really comfortable with silence because that's a conversation too. Mm. When a teenager doesn't talk to you, it doesn't mean they're not talking to you. It doesn't mean they're not communicating with you. They're finding a way to communicate in a different way. You gotta just figure out how to speak that language. Mm. Silence is a conversation. So what's the what's a big like a like like is, what's a, a hot a hot button for some parents? Like something you address to? For me, I talk a lot about the teen brain, and I'm not a scientist, but basically stated the way to the hot button for most parents is how do I get my teenager to talk to me they shut the door or they respond in one word sentences and I want to be able to have a conversation and the what one of the main things what I say in the book and I say to parents is you're not talking to a teenager you're talking to an amygdala understand the difference it's not the person you think is in front of you it's a part of the brain that fights or flights that gives off signals that literally says, am I safe here? Am I not safe here? It's the piece inside the, in between the ears and the brain that is looking for its safe place to land. Mm. So when talking to a teenager, know that you're talking to an amygdala. And the way to talk to an amygdala is with I statements. If you say a you statement to a teenager, or anybody for that matter, the amygdala is going to go on fire and say, I'm, I'm out of here. Right. Or a fight back. Right, right, right. Right, right. right. It's, but it's like, that's like classic uh, couples tools. Because sure. in a long-term relationship, sure. it's the same amygdala. You didn't. Well, you, you shouldn't. You, you never. You. You always. And notice it's you a. You never. You always and you never with a pointed finger. Right, right. And with this like. Right. The shaming one. Sure. Wand. The shaming one. <laughs> but then I is an open door. I is an invitation. I is a welcoming. I need to hear you speak to me. I need to say something. I wish that you would talk to me. Or I feel this. I or feel I, when this happened, I felt. Right. And I that's how you talk to a teenager. Not anyway. when this happened, you should have. Right. Why didn't you? Right. You know, uh, so I love to do this exercise. We did this once a couple of years ago in our men's group where you have to talk to somebody and say what you want to say, but you can never say the word you. And you've got to find different ways to communicate without saying you, because you is always, always fight or flight. Once a person hears you, 
there's either gonna be a, I'm running away or I'm gonna fight you. So if I want to have a conversation with you about your blue shirt, I'm gonna have to find a way to say it without the, saying the word you. So I'd have to say, I'm noticing you were Right, right, right. Oh, I really love blue. And I noticed that it's on your torso. <laughs> and it fills me with a feeling of comfort to see blue. You know what I'm saying? It just, it just, it's, it's, it's devoid of shaming and projection. Right. And it's also like, the thing I'm noticing, because like, I, I learned sort of the similar to like this like couples communication back when I was in my first marriage. <laughs> in my first husband. My, but I didn't know how to, I could use the words and I statements while inside I'm like, you are going to die. And I couldn't get to the energy place of I. where I was like, where you I, exist. I, I exist, exist and I'm enough. I'm like sharing authentically how I feel without like putting out all these little hooks to like, no, come over here and tell me who you are. Show me, validate me, love me, make me okay. Like you're wrong and make you own it. Like I realized like, if I can just feel, I guess the thing I've discovered, like, I am a, a complete person, and I respect that you are a complete person, and I don't have to like. Well, this is that's an important sentence. I can only respect that you are a complete person when and until and only when and until I know that I'm a complete but person. I'm right because I'm only can give you what I've been giving myself. I, I can, can only, only give speak, you what I've given I can myself. only speak from. My place of enoughness. But my place of enoughness. And it's only then when I'm here, I'm not seeking from you something right. because I'm already whole. And I think, and right. as so, you're talking about parents, I'm thinking, I wonder how many parents have gotten to that place where they can allow, give space for this, their, their teen. It's hard because. To live, because they're like, well, what I happens with. I'm not being a parent life. myself, but what I can say is. It it, it, it it happens overnight. You've got this eight and nine year old in the front seat of your car who talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and tells you every single thing about their day, and it's easy. Right. And then overnight, that nine or ten year old turns into a fourteen or fifteen year old and is now sitting in the back seat, texting somebody sitting next to them in the back seat and not telling you anything. And so there's a sense of what did I do wrong as a parent? How did I get demoted from confidant to chauffeur? And what can I do? to change this and the first thing to know is it's not personal. They're in the back seat because they're they're scaffolding themselves from the world, not from you, from the world that has become a scary place. Right. It's a shield. And so once we, once anybody, a, a parent or an advisor or a, a, a guy, a, a mentor takes it personally, you've already lost. Right. It's not Right, because now, now you're now you're in your it's not about you, and now you're both now you're in your amygdala. Now exactly. you're both fight or flight so each other. Fight or flight so each now other. I'm going to go into a nightmare, and I'm going to try to get you to wake up out of your nightmare. But I've fallen asleep, so now I can't wake well, it's you. Very much like you the know. way I got infected, and that's interesting and almost ugly tra uh, tra uh, parallel. But the truth is, I went to that guy's apartment, bringing my shadows, my shadow self, the parts of me that I didn't want to discover, didn't want to look at. He invited me to his apartment and opened the door from his shadow place, the parts of him that he didn't want to take a deeper look at, unpack, explore, and discover. And the two of us had an interaction. So with parents of teenagers, sometimes the amygdala to amygdala, we, we don't unpack our own real feelings about, real feelings about a situation. So we're coming from a much more superficial place. 
in, in interpersonal conversations rather than in interactions, rather than taking a moment to actually sit in the silence and recognize the silence is a really great uh, uh, time to do some unpacking and feel. Right, and to s- and also, I think I I think I've changed now because I'm using these this type of dialogue with like my new uh, boyfriend partner or you know person that I'm being intimate with to sit. And now I'm actually we're doing those same tools, but I'm not, I'm not hanging out even at the edge of the amygdala. I'm like just hanging out, like, oh, I actually can hear you because I'm. Well, if you want to still talk brain, so once you're leaving the edge of the amygdala region, you're heading towards the prefrontal cortex, yeah, the part that's fully developed or is supposed to be in adults, and sometimes we don't act like it is, but it's the part of reasoning and thinking, the third eye, right, planning common sense forethought and that's a place to communicate from right that's it's, it's completely different it's completely different I'm like oh I'm not sitting here like revving up some sort of like fireball like I'm like Dragon Ball Z like I'm ready to fight I'm, like, I'm not here to win an argument I'm like what am I feeling oh what happened in that situation where you said this thing and because you're coming from this part of your brain. Right, because we, we, do, we do a word. We say, oh, do you feel like you're inside the couple or outside the couple? Where did you feel out? Mm-hmm. And then we can start talking about, oh, I felt out when blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Or I felt in when blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, suddenly I'm just referencing my inner world here of what's going on with me as opposed to you, you, you. Like, oh, Okay, so I'm going to challenge you here. When somebody asks you, whoever that might be, a counselor or even your partner, saying, when did you feel in or out, what was it? in the person, what attributes did they embody that they were able to ask that question to you so that when they asked that question, you answered from here, your amygdala, right, as opposed uh, to prefrontal. Prefrontal, prefrontal amygdala, right. Because it's in, the, it's in the way the question's asked. Right. It's in the way the information is delivered. It's the way that the, man, the person in front of you nods their head and validates and acknowledges that they see you that ignites the prefrontal cortex and calms the amygdala. Right. And that's how you talk to a teenager, and it's what I try to get parents to understand. If you ask questions like, why? Why is always shaming? Why, why? is a dead end? Right. Why is only going to get you? Because. Conversation's over. If you ask, how? If you ask, what about? If you ask, what part of you? And then the rest of the sentence, you leave the region of the amygdala and you move closer to the parts of the brain which start to deal with reasoning. So there are certain tricks that right. actually work. Right, because I... I, I, I and it's, it's, it, it's like, it's, it's knowing the words, it's also coming from the end, like you said, like, because also when he asked me that, he was, he, it wasn't when we were in the, in the conflict, it was like a day later or a couple hours later, it's like, hey, and he was he was in a place that was like calm and he wasn't on fire. He was he wasn't on fire, so he wasn't gonna reignite my fire. And yeah. it was a very different way. Yeah. Like I mean, one time we had a thing, and I for, we had, we both had said uh, moratorium, which is a safe word. If you're having a fight, just drop it. Say it moratorium, and you just end the fight because you're both super triggered. You're both like deep amygdala, and you can't get. So we just drop it and act as if and just wait for the warmth. And so like the next day, after we had just sort of faked it after dinner, we said, just stop talking about it. Let's talk about something. So what did you think about 
you know, whatever. This is a decent dumpling, or this is, you know, we just started talking about food instead of like, what the fuck were you doing with that event? And you did the decent dumpling. Right, right. We just talked about the. I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna do that. And the next day, he was like, we, he was being gentle and asking, because we were both in a very calm place. And he's like, so how did you? When did you feel out? Or what happened? And then he said, I don't know if you and I will become a couple or continuous friends, but I know I want to just, I want to have this. And I wasn't expecting this moment to happen, but he was in the space of it, and I was just open, mm. and my face just cried. Like, I wasn't even thinking, I'm going to cry now. My body just, when he said, I just want to have this kind of truth. Right. And it fell open from my body, and wow. I was like, wow. Another fight, no flight. Right, it's right here. So the key it. to that is what you said, in my humble opinion, is what you said right at the beginning of that little piece. Wait for the warmth. Mm. It's a beautiful phrase. Mm. It's chapter nine. That's a chapter nine tool. Wait for the warmth. Yeah. Beautiful. A safe word to interrupt the fight and then act as if, you know, just focus on something else. Yeah. But both parties have to know that tool. You know? It's a little different with parents to teenagers. But if a par- with parents to teenagers, the parent, I think it's on the parent has to really like... You're dealing with a power differential, and there needs to be a power differential because right. you're, 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 the parent. You're, you're raising someone. Exactly. So it's a little, di- it's actually a lot different, but but some of the stuff is... is but if the parent can get to that place, I, th- I right. think... Right, you just don't want to come from an amygdala to an amygdala. Right, right. You have to stay in your full, accepting, open place. Which and somewhat detached, which is why it's important to never take it personally. Right. Because it's not about you. Never about you. Yeah. Now, how can parents or anybody find you? So, uh, I have a really cool website, scottfried.com, my name, but it's F R I E D, not like, it's like fried. Yeah, Scott Fried. I know my iPhone still says Scott Fried calling. <laughs> I answer to that. Call so, Scott Fried iPhone. Yeah, scottfried.com. And then there's a store. You can just buy it from there. Uh, all my on, books. On Instagram. Scott Fried. <laughs> all one Scott, word. At Scott Fried. All one, all one word, yeah. Okay. Most people just DM me these days. And on Insta- on Facebook, I am Scott Freed. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much... I haven't done TikTok yet. Oh, God. Do I need to know TikTok now? You do, but um, I just haven't gotten there yet. So next oh, episode. Oh, boy. Yeah, the next episode. Well, yeah. Scott, I'm so grateful that you're joining us here today on We There Yet Podcast. For more information... You can go to WTYPod, WTYPOD.com. I'll have links uh, in all the meta so that you guys can, can find Scott Fried, scottfried.com, F-R-I-E-D. Looks like, I'll hold your book up again. There it is. And so the title of the book again is? Uh, How to Raise an Elegant Teen, the ABCs of Gen Z Parenting. Awesome. Awesome. I'll have all those links and all your other books as well. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. And uh, for more information, you go to the website, leave a review on iTunes or anywhere else, tell your friends, tell strangers, and thanks for joining us. I'm Rich Campfield. Thank you again, Scott Freed. See you next time. W-T-Y. It's a comedy journey.